Coming up on the Sark Fighter podcast, even doctors can get sarcoidosis. I was um, transported to the local heart center uh, and I was told I have big bulging coronary arteries, so it couldn't be a heart attack. Tafika Maud had started getting more and more tired until even daily tasks wore him out. Uh, and once I was home, that was it. I'd, I'd be on the sofa. Normally, um, I'd go at the weekend, and uh, when I returned home, I'd, I'd shower, have something quick to eat, and then go in the garden and mow the lawn. Coming up, my interview with Tafik his sarcoidosis story, and his own medical perspective on how the medical community struggles to see and deal with sarcoidosis. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 23 of the Sark Fighter podcast, brought to you in part by a grant from A-Tire Pharma. I am your host, John Carlin. The official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer, who plays in a band called the White Hot Lizards. Mark is a fellow Sark Fighter, and you can hear his story about how Sark took him off the ice. He was a goalie, a hockey player, and in episode 12, he came on, he shared how he found the lyrics to this song, and if you listen to the entire song, I can tell you that it is haunting, and it tells the sarcoidosis story very well, and I appreciate him bringing his art form to the message. And proceeds from that song, by the way, will be donated to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look in the show notes, and I'll have a link to where you can listen to the entire song online. Download it if you want, and uh, just really kind of listen to it and see if, if he isn't telling your story as well. Now, I call this the Sark Fighter Podcast because I'm fighting Sark, and so are you, whether you're a patient, a researcher, a caregiver, a pharmaceutical company, somewhere in the mix, you are here because of sarcoidosis in one way or another. And this podcast is is a place where all of us can gather. Uh, One of the things that we hear time and time again in the sarcoidosis community is that people feel all alone. They don't know anybody else who has sarcoidosis. They don't have anybody to talk to. They don't have anybody who understands. And the people who are coming on, whether they're patients telling their stories or doctors talking about their research and maybe the hope that that could be, uh, that that could bring, um, that's, that's what this podcast is all about. I want, I want people to know that there is a reason to hope that other people are dealing with what you're dealing with and that the medical community is out there trying to find ways to deal with this. And maybe you're just frustrated because you can't find a local doctor who uh, can help you or, you or you can't find a doctor that you like or your doctor's throwing up his hands. Well, um, there are things that you can do. There are places that you can go, and we're trying to shine a light on all of that. And of course, the, the people who are best at that uh, are the folks at the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Uh, so the first thing you need to do, if you haven't already, is go to their website 
And there's places there where you can find a doctor, you can find another patient to talk to through the, uh, the advocate program. There are, there are many things out there that can, that can give you hope, and this podcast is just one more uh, arrow in the quiver, as it were. And so normally I release this podcast every other Monday. Now, if you are new to the disease and you're trying to figure out what you have and you, you just don't even know what sarcoidosis is, um, welcome. Sorry you're here, as I've said for several episodes in a row now, but we'll do all we can to help. And you might want to consider listening to my interview with Dr. Simon Hart from the UK in episode two. He sort of goes over sarcoidosis 101. If you want to know more about me and my backstory, I laid out all the details in episode one, and I actually was featured in a television story uh, at the station where I work, and you can find a link to that and you can watch it on YouTube. Um, if you want to know the backstory as to how the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research came into being, I highly recommend that you go back and check out episode 11 with the founders, Andrea and Redding Wilson. Andrea has a significant uh, case of SARC. She has struggled with it, but she has uh, found her way through. But 20 years ago, there was no foundation. There was no hope. Well, I don't want to say no hope, but there was little hope. And there were few avenues to discover anything more about sarcoidosis. And so Andrea and Redding founded the uh, FSR, the foundation. And they talk all about how they did that from their kitchen table. Uh, from the fundraisers and getting a medical board together to uh, to help guide the organization, uh, and and Andrea talking about uh, all the things that happened to her, it was it was honestly quite quite awful. Um, and I don't want to steal her thunder, but if you go back and listen, uh, I I think that you will uh, you will find that. Uh, uh, there's some, some comfort there in knowing that other people have survived going through a, a, just a terrible, terrible bout with sarcoidosis. Now, and then I should mention that FSR has a brand new CEO in Mary McGowan, who brings an impressive resume to the table in terms of her ability to raise money, which is so important, creating outreach programs for patients. And and I think forming relationships with other organizations that can really help FSR, sort of people with a common goal in mind in the medical community or the fundraising community to, uh, to help get to the next level of funding and research and everything that's needed to advance the cause of finding treatments and, and dare I say, maybe someday a cure. Mary appeared on the uh, Sark Fighter podcast in my previous episode, the one right before this one, episode 22. Now, I want to tell you a little bit more about today's guest. Tafik Ahmad lives in the UK. He's originally from Bangladesh. His father was a doctor and moved the family to the UK when Tafik was four. So basically, he's, he's grown up there. He attended uh, Manchester Medical School, and in 2001, Tafik became a general practitioner, what, what we would call a family doctor here in the United States. He's married. He has a four-year-old daughter, uh, had been very athletic. He was a cyclist, swimmer, uh, hiker, runner. He liked to take uh, photographs. Uh, but thanks to Sark, he's had to give up his career and most of the things that I just mentioned that he likes to do. And he contacted me via email after listening to the podcast, which still blows my mind. Uh, there he is in, in the in the U.K., and I can look at the little data 
uh, map that I get on the back end of my uh, Podbean account, and it shows me, yeah, I've had some people listen in the UK and Canada and uh, Australia and different places around the world, but it, it just amazes me that I'm sitting here in my at-home office, which was my oldest son's bedroom when he was growing up, and I've converted it into an office, and I've got a microphone and a Mac, and I just got on here and started talking about sarcoidosis, and now I have people uh, who are contacting me from other parts of the world saying thank you and and uh, asking if, um, if I would consider having them come on so they can share their story with other SARC patients. And uh, and so Tafik sends me this email, and I realized immediately that he is sort of a, a kindred spirit with me. He and I have so much in common. He he talked about liking to ride his bicycle, and of course, I'm an avid cyclist. And and you know, he had a had a really good bicycle, his road bike. It was a Tour de France quality road bike, and uh, he he likes to hike and take pictures and, and you know and I've been on safaris and I've got a, a nice camera and that's you know I love to go out and be in nature and to practice my photography and I keep practicing and someday maybe I'll I'll take a good picture one that's you know really memorable but anyway <laughs> that's neither here nor there um, but that you know he he and I had a lot in common so I immediately reached out to him and and I wanted to ask him how his path might have been different than that for the rest of us because he's a doctor himself. Did, was there any advantages? Were there any disadvantages? Did, did anybody see sarcoidosis coming any sooner for him than they do for the rest of us? Because typically there is a, a time of misdiagnosis with SARC. And I wanted to ask him about that. I wanted to get some insight into some of the frustrations that many of us have with the medical community. I figured, well, okay, he's a doctor. Uh, he's got SARC. He'll understand. So I can kind of, I can just kind of ask him some of these questions because he'll know where I'm coming from. And I, and I did ask him that stuff. Um, and I wanted to know if he had any idea what might have caused his sarcoidosis. His, his opinion is a bit more informed than most patients. You know, he's been to medical school. His father was a doctor. Uh, and then, but we don't know the cause of sarcoidosis. He doesn't know the cause of sarcoidosis. But I thought, well, what does he think it is? And, and so, so we went into that a little bit. And we just had a really good, engaging conversation about his story uh, how the medical community works, and and how frustrating it is to have so few options once you have sarcoidosis. So, coming up, my interview with Dr. Tafik Ahmad. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast.
Welcome back to the Sark Fighter podcast. And joining me now is Tafik Ahmad, who uh, is also a fellow Sark warrior, a Sark fighter. And he has had uh, a tough road to hoe, so to speak. And Tafik, welcome to the uh, podcast. Thank you very much, John. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on. And I am speaking to you. You are in Great Britain. That's right. I'm uh, in uh, a place called Lancashire, County of Lancashire in the northwest, uh, probably about 25 miles from Manchester. Beautiful. So uh, are you a Manchester United fan? Uh, the opposite, actually. I'm a Liverpool fan. Um, really? They're, they're big rivals. So I, I, was, um, I moved around the country a lot and uh, I lived a good many years in Merseyside, which is where Liverpool is uh, located. So, uh, yeah, I'm a red, but a different type of red. <laughs> Got you. Well, we're talking about your history with sarcoidosis. And you have uh, uh, an amazing story to tell. And, and, and as you pointed out in your email, when, when we first started communicating with one another, uh, you are sort of living proof that it doesn't matter uh, what your background is you can still be targeted by this because you're a medical doctor and you, you, you know, you, you supposedly were doing everything right. And you, um, uh, you, your diagnosis was still difficult, which is what we're hearing from patient after patient after patient here on the podcast. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, first of all, just, just kind of give us your general situation. How old are you now? How long have you been dealing with it? And then I want to sort of back into when it started emerging. Yes, um, I'm 49 years of age now. Um, and uh, it, um, it all started about uh, two years ago in uh, 2018, I'd say around about September time. The funny thing is, looking back at it, um, I had symptoms. Uh, that I could have attributed to um, uh, something serious long before that, but you know, sort of naively, I ignored them. Um, I, I just, you know, sort of discounted that uh, anything, you know, sort of serious would be happening to me. So I've been fighting for two years. Um, initially, um, I was admitted, and I was told that I might have had a uh, acute myocardial infarction, a heart attack. Uh -huh. um, that's how he presented. Uh, I was um, transported to the local heart centre, and um, they—I uh, had an angiogram immediately that night. I was very fortunate, uh, and I was told I have big bulging coronary arteries, so it couldn't be a heart attack. But they didn't notice that part of my heart wasn't moving very well, so I had numerous tests, and they found a large lesion in the uh, left ventricle area. Uh, the, the most muscular part of the heart um, and they thought I had uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy um, but also on a chest x-ray they did notice lots of uh, nodules and uh, just you know, sort of streaky lines in there um, so they asked me uh, for a chest review uh, and the chest physician said it's either TB or sarcoidosis um, because I was so well um, they discounted TB I didn't have any of the fever or weight loss or anything like that. And um, so over the next few months, I had very many tests and until I had a PET scan, which confirmed that it was most likely sarcoidosis of the lungs and the heart. Wow. 
So I, I'm curious because as an MD yourself, did it ever occur to you that it might be sarcoidosis? I had no idea. Um, I remember one night I was uh, lying in bed and I just felt a few palpitations. And um, I was very naive then. I checked my pulse. It was nice and regular. So I checked the pulse in the wrist. Many months after, I actually checked my pulse in my, uh, over the heart area. And that was very regular. Um, you can get sometimes what's called a pulse deficit. So even though your heart could beat 100 times, it might not filter through to your arteries. Um, it could only filter through about 60 times. Um, so again, I discounted, I thought, well, I'm in my 40s, I've got a high cholesterol, I'm, I'm probably getting a few extra beats, some ectopics. So um, at that stage, I had no clue, but I thought I need to get checked out. And um, the uh, uh, ECG that I organized culminated in my being diagnosed later on. So let's go back to the day that you went to the doctor and they took you away. What, what were you doing and how, what, was, what was your body telling you that something wasn't right? Did you, I mean, were you walking along the street and you passed out? Were you, were you watching television? Were you, and what were you doing and, and how did you know this is the time to go to the hospital? Um, again, I felt there's no indication whatsoever that I was seriously ill. Um, at the time I was uh, first presented to the doctor, um, I like to go swimming. I've, I've got a, a four-year-old child, a daughter. So um, every opportunity I get, I try and get uh, an hour's worth of swimming at the swimming pool. I was doing 50, 50 lengths of 25 meters. Um, admittedly, near the end, I did feel that it was becoming more onerous and I was struggling to complete, but I still completed. Um, and I was still going to the gym. I was running 5K, um, albeit at a you know, sort of uh, a fairly relaxed pace. So, but the palpitations were the thing that uh, probably highlighted that uh, something could be up. But again, sarcoidosis couldn't have been further from my mind. I thought um, it was going to be a, a heart, you know, sort of related uh, illness. Um, there's a family history of um, arrhythmias, um, high cholesterol. I've had high cholesterol despite being quite slim all my life. Um, so I, I had no clue even at that stage. Right. Well, and I, I should point out that uh, when you and I were talking before, you, you are uh, or were an endurance athlete, kind of like me. Uh, you, you're running 5Ks, you're, you're swimming you know, 50 laps, which is, by the way, congratulations, that's impressive. <laughs> you're a cyclist, you like to play uh, soccer, or as you say in the continent, football. Um, and so, and you're slim. And so, but, but one of the things that's sort of integral to being an endurance athlete is just pushing through the difficulty, either when you're training or when you're racing or when you're competing, your ability to suffer a little bit more than the next guy is what sets you apart from the next guy and gives you that sort of self-satisfaction that I had the ability to do something that was a little bit painful, but it, it produced a good result. And, and that, I think that's a driving force. I, I, you, you know, you hear the, the Tour de France cyclists say, I eat pain for breakfast, right? Uh, and so I'm assuming that you were sort of approaching things with that mindset 
And, but at some point it was beyond what normal pushing through is. Yes. Um, I found out that, uh, when I went to the gym, I'd use the treadmill just so that it'd be a bit kinder on my knees and ankles. Um, my warm-ups were getting longer and longer. Uh, so I didn't feel quite ready to, you know, sort of start at the higher pace. Um, and uh, I, I felt more tired at the end of things as well. Uh, and once I was home, that was it. I'd, I'd be on the sofa. Normally, um, I'd go at the weekend. And uh, when I returned home, I'd, I'd shower, have something quick to eat, and then go in the garden and mow the lawn uh, for a, an hour or two. Uh, but uh, I had to um, organize things so I didn't make myself overtired. Right. So there wasn't like a, a moment where it all of a sudden hit. This sort of crept up on you over a period of time? No, it was, it was insidious, I would say. Okay. And you finally said, hmm, this isn't right. Uh, I'm going to go see somebody and get some tests done. Uh, and you know, some people, there's, a, there's an expression that we have here in the States, and I don't, I don't mean this to reference you, but the, the expression is, um, the doctor who treats himself has a fool for a patient. So <laughs> have, you, have you ever heard that before? Something along those lines. Something yes. along those lines. I think they say it for lawyers. The lawyer that represents himself as a fool for a client has probably been, been, uh, been uh, used in various professions. But, but the point is, is that it's hard to recognize something in yourself. And Definitely. So what, uh, what was your process? How did you begin to approach trying to find out what was wrong? Um, I'm quite lucky. Um, I'm a general practitioner. I was, or is it a family practitioner in the U.S.? Yes, family. Sure. Either so, one. So um, um, I have lots of um, locally. I have lots of friends and colleagues. Uh, who are also uh, family practitioners. And uh, essentially, um, I knew what tests needed to be done. So I went to see a, a colleague and I said, I gave her a list, basically. Um, uh, the useful thing is that uh, um, I gave her bullet points. I said, these are the symptoms I have. So I think she just typed them down as though I was dictating. Um, and I said, I'd like these tests, chest X-ray, uh, EKG, uh, and blood tests, um, and uh, I went for the uh, chest x-ray. They didn't actually tell me that there was any specific uh, abnormality, but they said, we'd like to repeat it again in a few weeks' time. Uh, usually they do that if they suspect you have pneumonia because they might see a bit of um, consolidation, as it's called, on the x-ray, and ask you to go on antibiotics and then review in six weeks to see if it's resolved. If not, you may need further investigations. But they were a little bit coy about that. And uh, funnily enough, um, on the day that uh, I was admitted, I'd actually attended uh, a different health center for my EKG with my uh, daughter, who was only two at that stage. And um, uh, they have a system whereby they check your EKG and it gets sent to a central location in England uh, and they get sent a message back so they don't actually print off the EKG which was a shame, but um, the, uh, the nurse who did it rang the centre and asked if they'd received it, and they were she was told, you need to get this person in hospital straight away. So she turned around to me and told me that, uh, and I was shocked. And 
At first, again, uh, it's my nature. I was dismissive. I thought, a bit, I know there's just a couple of abnormalities. That can happen. It can be common variation in males or, you know, people of different, different ethnic origins. So I said, look, please don't call an ambulance. It'll be a waste of taxpayers' money. Uh, I'm going to take my daughter home and then I'll uh, seek help after that. So I took my daughter home, asked my wife to look after her, and I actually walked part of the way to the hospital, which is on top of a hill. So again, I didn't struggle with breath or pain or anything like that. And um, uh, once they repeated the EKG and did my cardiac enzymes, as it were, they rushed into my room and said, we've booked an ambulance for you to take you to the heart center. Um, so that was a shock, and I assumed I had a heart attack. Wow. So what was your path forward after that? Um, again, I was, uh, I was thoroughly investigated at the heart center. Um, I was really upset when uh, I was informed that I most likely had HCM, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, because uh, the, the first thought that went through my head wasn't that, uh, you know, uh, this is going to progress, I'm going to die. It was what will happen to my daughter because it's uh, genetically inherited. So it's, there's a 50% chance that uh, you could pass it on to your children. So um, in a way, despite all the troubles that came with the sarcoidosis, I'd much prefer my daughter to have a, uh, a, a one in 100,000 chance of getting sarcoidosis than a 50% chance of uh, HCM. So, that, I mean, it's, it's a strange positive, but it, it's still a positive. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it took a while for the diagnosis, and I, I noticed that in most of your uh, previous podcasts. It's a very difficult diagnosis to make, and I hold my hand up. I've uh, only seen a few cases of people with sarcoidosis in my clinical setting, and most of them have been uh, mild lung disease. Um, in fact, I, I only thought that uh, it was very common to have it in the lungs and the skin, nowhere else. And um, I certainly wasn't aware that it was, could be such a problem in, in the heart. And apparently now they're discovering that um, uh, after autopsy results that uh, approximately 25% of uh, sarcoidosis sufferers could actually have um, heart involvement. Really? So you, you are not as well today as you were when all this presented. I mean, you've, had to, you've had to back off, you've had to retire. Uh, so what, what has happened since then? I mean, have you been unable to control it? Uh, what, what's going on? Um, I, think, I think a lot of, some of the damage was already done uh, when I was diagnosed and because of the delay, um, maybe um, I wasn't giving uh, a quick enough chance with the uh, anti-inflammatories like the prednisolone. So in effect, what I had was you know, a very, very slow uh, evolving heart attack, but without the pain. So th the lesion was in my heart, but um, it was just uh, becoming more and more inflamed. And as with most things, it uh, healed by fibrosis. So the same as a heart attack. So it was evolving. I did go on steroids about two months after I'd initially been to hospital, but it might have been too late. And so I've um, developed heart failure as a result. Um, and um, I would say that sarcoidosis has become more pronounced in that I get really severe fatigue. Um, the way I describe it is uh, it's like having flu, but without the fever. 
Hmm. So you're on. So you're on the couch a lot. Yes, and, and as you know, John, um, half the story is the illness itself, but the other half is uh, um, fighting the uh, side effects of uh, the medications you take to treat the illness. So I, I'm a person who's never had high blood pressure. My blood pressure's been low normal. And one of the first things they did was put me on two blood pressure tablets. So uh, my blood pressure sometimes is um, 80 over 50 when it should be 120 over 70. So as a result, I, I am on the couch, basically. Um, other times it's difficult walking because of uh, pain in the muscles. And uh, it, it's almost like my um, feet are stuck in glue, you know, sort of uh, putting one step in front of the other is, you know, sort of very troublesome. And uh, of course, there's the, uh, the heart failure. So that has, you know, drastically reduced my uh, exercise tolerance. Yeah, and that's, you and I were trading stories, and listeners know that I like to, to ride my bicycle, and you were quite a cyclist, and, and you had uh, a Tour de France caliber bike for a while. You had a Trek 5500, which is what Lance Armstrong used to ride, uh, which, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to go, ooh, Lance Armstrong, but you and I were talking about how, you know, before all the bad stuff evolved, he was quite a motivating factor in both of our lives. Um, so did you go through this whole why me phase? I mean, not why, not poor me, why me, but I'm physically fit. I know enough to eat well, uh, you know, socioeconomically, uh, I'm not, I don't have to make bad choices. Did, did you, did you go through a bunch of that? Uh, I was upset when, um, uh, I received the, you know, uh, the final diagnosis, um, as far as why me, I don't think that ever entered into my mind, mainly because of my profession. Um, I see so many really unfortunate people, babies born with congenital defects, young people that are uh, affected by very serious illness. Um, it's funny, I mean, I don't really, you know, sort of didn't really think of death very often, but when I did, I always was under the impression that if anything happened to me now in my 40s, I could still consider myself being very, very lucky. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I've, I've had uh, similar thoughts. I'm older than you are. Uh, I've certainly uh, led a blessed life, and uh, I, I have no reason to complain. But did you ask yourself, why would sarcoidosis find a healthy person? Um, I was already aware that uh, it could affect absolutely anyone and uh, th there's a chance that uh, it could be something that you inhale, hence 90% of sufferers tend to uh, have pulmonary uh, um, uh, disease. Um, so I was aware that it could affect you know, healthy individuals and uh, strangely enough, um, before I was diagnosed maybe uh, eight or nine months previously, I was actually treating someone who was suffering from TB um, and uh, a week or so afterwards I developed a, a fever and uh, body aches. I thought I had a serious uh, chest infection but I don't remember coughing strangely um, but one of my colleagues prescribed some antibiotics and I was absolutely fine and I didn't give it any thought afterwards and I'm wondering whether that could have been the uh, initial insult that uh, uh, could have brought on the sarcoidosis. Yeah, that's that's 
That's interesting. And, and it's very seldom that I've got a, a physician uh, on the other end of the podcast here, but we don't know what causes sarcoidosis. You, you, you seem to think maybe it is something that you breathe in. Uh, do you feel confident about that or, or do you think it could be another cause? Um, if you look at all, uh, you know, sort of probabilities, because so many people are affected in the lungs first or possibly, you know, sort of only the lungs, that's, a, I would say that's a reasonable theory. Um, uh, I mean, I, I'm no expert. I'm, I don't, you know, sort of uh, research it or anything like that. But as you know, John, when you're uh, afflicted by illness, you, you become an expert. You uh, read broadly, you educate yourself. Um, all the things, you know, sort of sensible things that you do to try and manage uh, the illness. And um, uh, I remember someone uh, speaking and saying that it could be that we're all potentially um, uh, prone to developing sarcoidosis, but um, some of us just don't get hit by the silver bullet. Um, we, we don't come across the insult that could, uh, you know, sort of uh, make our body overreact. Uh, uh, to a foreign organism or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's interesting. We see it in the United States uh, in the African American population, but then there's also uh, uh, it appears to be common in people from uh, Northern Europe, right? Um, so Scandinavian countries, and you are of uh, Indian descent, correct? Uh, yes, Bangladeshi, but yeah, it, was, it formed Bangladesh, part of India yeah. until yeah. Uh, 19, uh, well, until <laughs> separation. Um, so uh, um, that's an interesting point you bring up, John. Um, in India, the TB is quite a problem. Uh, it's for an illness of that sort, it's quite widespread. And um, uh, it could be that um, lots of people are misdiagnosed as having TB when they have sarcoidosis, hence, they don't seem to improve very much on anti-tuberculous therapy. Um, in fact, one of my uh, cousin's um, husband's father suffered from sarcoidosis, but he was diagnosed as having TB first. That was in this in the UK, um, and uh, after a long time, uh, they made the correct diagnosis. And uh, just one milligram per day of prednisolone completely transformed his life. Um, he, he was a, a, a physician as well. And he was able to go to work. Previously, he was uh, off sick for long periods of time. Is prednisolone the same as prednisone, or are they different? That's right. Yeah, yeah. it's just uh, uh, the, the UK you know, sort of uh, name. Got it. Got it. Okay, I, I had a feeling that's what it was. And when you were taking um, prednisone, how many milligrams were you taking a day initially? Um, I was commenced on forty milligrams, but um, uh, if if uh, cardiac sarcoidosis was uh, suspected because of the um, onus to try and halt its progress straight away to avoid any heart damage, I think uh, in, in uh, specialist centres here, you're given uh, pulse doses of methylprednisolone, the intravenous version, right. over three days, uh, yeah. and then put on a high dose afterwards. And I was commenced on 40 milligrams, which is about the average uh, starting there. Some people can go on 60. Um, I mean, for other illnesses, um, uh, you know, I've, I've known people to start on 80 per day. That's what I did. Uh, they, they yeah, because it's so important. 
and the, and then the eighty. Yeah, and in <laughs> your case, they they would have wanted to preserve your uh, mobility, so right. that's why they would have treated you very aggressively. And plus, you're a fit, healthy person. Um, one, you could probably have tolerated it better. If you're a diabetic, it would have been a problem. Uh, and two, they would have wanted uh, to try and preserve your you know level of activity. Right. Right. Well. Um, they did that, but man, it was uh, 2019 was a bad year between uh, cytoxin and prednisone. And, uh, anyway, my, my listeners are, are familiar with my story. What is, what is your prognosis going forward? Uh, well, initially, when I first uh, started reading up about uh, people with cardiac involvement, it was, uh, it was very bleak. Uh, and uh, frightening. Um, uh, many uh, sources seem to quote two-year survival rate uh, from the time of diagnosis. Um, but uh, reading more about it, I've learned that uh, because of um, newer interventions such as ICDs, you know, defibrillators, uh, and uh, the widespread use of PET scans, that has increased, but I'm not sure to, to what extent. Uh, but I've uh, I'm still here. Um, I was diagnosed or I first presented in um, September of 2018. So it's been over two years, but um, th the problem is that it, it can progress or um, you can have a lot of uh, bad effects or complications from the illness as well. Do, do you feel like it's controlled right now? Um, I, I've been told it's under control, but um, I feel the uh, the complications have become worse. And um, whereas before, I, I remember when I was first diagnosed and I was discharged home, uh, I went on a two mile walk, which I normally do just to stretch my legs after after work and things. And it felt absolutely fine. I thought, great, I'm, I'm back to normal. But now there's there's no chance because where we live is quite hilly. I really struggle with inclines and uh, with stairs. I have to take it very, very slowly. And even then I um, have to catch my breath at the top. So there has been a gradual decline. Yeah. We're speaking with Tafika Ahmad, who is a physician who has cardiac sarcoidosis here on the Sark Fighter podcast. So is there anything that you are doing or can do or think you can be doing besides medicine to stay in front of this? In other words, can you work out? Can you eat more broccoli? Are you doing anything to change your lifestyle in, in an attempt to get in front of this? Um, I'm, I mean, if anyone could enlighten me, I'd be very grateful, but I, I'm not sure if there's any very strong evidence uh, to say that uh, if you modify your lifestyle uh, and for instance, someone such as yourself, John, I think you're already doing all the right things. Um, and um, although I, I try to do the right things, my, my diet wasn't perfect. And uh, I had a family uh, history of high cholesterol, um, but um, it, it it's difficult to know what, what could improve things or what new things we could uh, uh, um, commence, you know, sort of to, uh, to control these things. I think my, my advice would be if you were living a healthy life before, more of the same, um, but avoid vitamin D uh, supplements. Avoid vitamin D. Um, I've been told that it can uh, uh, 
cause an exacerbation of sarcoidosis. So I wasn't aware of that. In fact, I was commenced on vitamin D initially when I was uh, put on prednisolone, uh, but the specialist center advised against it. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> now, what about um, exercise for you? Can, can Exercise tires you out, but if you were to do some walking, say, on a treadmill where you didn't have to walk in the hills, as you mentioned, could you strengthen your heart that way, or, or is that too risky or just too difficult? Uh, I think it's uh, still recommended. Um, in the past, I remember that uh, anyone with heart failure was advises, advised against exercise uh, because it was thought that there'd be too much strain on the heart and it would try and compensate and become larger to try and pump more blood. But uh, I think um, thinking has changed over time and um, they recommend that you still exercise. The, the way I do it, I, I'm fortunate to have a quite long uh, back garden uh, with a, a footpath that's on the level. So um, I try to uh, uh, walk as much as I can. The following day, I know I have to pay for it uh, in terms of uh, fatigue, etc., aches and pains. But then I go the following day after. So I do alternate days, weather permitting. And uh, I try to walk as far as I can. Uh, I can tell when it's time to stop. I start feeling dizzy, lightheaded, uh, and just very weak. And I have to go back inside and uh, just recline on the couch. Um, but the thing about exercise is, as, as you, you're aware, that uh, um, it causes changes in the body. Uh, it makes your small vessels enlarge or produces more of them. So it reduces basically the resistance and uh, you, you've got uh, a better circulation to work with the next time. Um, exercise is an insult to the body. So it adapts to try and reduce the effect of that insult. And uh, that would be um, uh, uh, the same for people with sarcoidosis. Well, there you go. Uh, I, I can tell you that, um, and I can't run anymore because I don't, I don't have the, it's not that I, my, I mean, my resting heart rate right now is 50, 52. Uh, That's excellent. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. It's like my badge of honor whenever they go to the <laughs> doctor and they're like, whoa, you know, 49, we're, you know, what's wrong with your heart? I'm like, there's nothing wrong with my heart. I'm a cyclist. You know? <laughs> it's, um, it's amazing. Um, uh, that is something to be very proud of is unless there's a, um, some people have heart block and so on and that could be the cause of their low heart rate. But overall, the lower it is, it means the body doesn't have to work hard to maintain everything. Uh, I'll tell you an interesting story. The, uh, do you remember the cyclist Miguel Indurain? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they used to call him the dead man. His um, resting heart rate was 28. Wow. And now all that means is, is that with one pump of his heart, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was flooding his body with everything it needed. So he, so the normal like person walking around there, I guess their resting heart rate would be in the seventies, maybe, right? Yeah, up uh, seventy two is about average, I think. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, big so it's pump, 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 and your heart has to pump that hard to circulate your blood. And when you're Miguel Indurain and you're you know the the winner of the Tour de France, it's just like boom, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you just so you just got this big heart muscle. Um, <laughs> So, and I don't know how I got off on that, but uh, that, that is a little badge of honor. Oh, I guess we're just talking about exercise. Uh, mm. When I don't exercise, I feel a lot worse. 
And, and I'm scared to death that if I lose the ability to exercise, you know, I have that downward spiral where it becomes so difficult that I won't be able to continue to exercise. So here go with so facto, I, uh, I jump on the bike or uh, my wife has a Peloton now so I can ride the Peloton in the basement during the bad weather. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, so I'm going on four years now of riding at least 100 miles a month without missing. So that's um, excellent. That's really good. Yeah. And, uh, and then starting back in the 90s, I think I had a streak of like 15 or 16 years where I did that. So and I log every mile. I'm meticulous about it. Um, <laughs> so I'm just, you know, because the thing is when, when you're an athlete, as you know, um, it is, it's, it's a part of you and you don't want to lose that. And you, you also feel like, okay, I just hit a bump in the road. I'll just try harder. And with sarcoidosis, there is no try harder. Right. I mean, there's no, there's, you can't do enough yoga. You can't do meditation. You can't all of a sudden become a vegan. Nothing seems to work. You're absolutely right. Um, I'm sure we, more things will be discovered. So it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, there will be hope for people, I'm sure. And especially with the help of uh, some of the people you interviewed and, and yourself, John, for bring it to uh, uh, the mainstream and bring this to lots of people's attention but uh, yes um, I think what I've discovered is that uh, uh, as before just like any time um, you have to listen to your body and um, you'll learn what your limitations are and you'll work within them so there's no point um, trying to do a sprint when um, you might have to just uh, embark in a light jog um, and uh, you might be able to do uh, more of a distance, but uh, you, you really have to uh, look after your body and um, uh, not damage yourself by trying to do too much. I, I have the same feelings. Um, if, if one of the worst things that's happened is that I can't exercise because it was a great stress reliever. It made me feel really good. I felt tired afterwards, but it was a good, good kind of tired. Uh, mm -hmm. And it makes you feel good about yourself, just such such as you, you know, being proud, quite rightly, of uh, uh, being able to put these miles in on the bike. So um, that has a major impact. And funny enough, COVID's brought that to light as well. Um, people realise just how much exercise is important to them, and uh, how difficult it is when uh, you're told that you can't do it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's just hard. Um, so when we look at, uh, and I'm, I'm asking you this question do, with your medical background, do you, do you feel that SARC is in fact an autoimmune disorder? Um, my um, understanding is that it's not a true autoimmune disorder. Uh, for instance, you have um, rheumatoid arthritis, um, sometimes, you know, sort of, uh, uh, thyroiditis and things like that where the body actually just you know sort of starts producing antibodies against uh, uh, cells such as in your joints or, or your thyroid gland I think uh, the way I understand it is that it's um, uh, it's an excessive uh, kind of action of the body um, whereby it, it doesn't need to go that far um, these granulometer form for instance uh, in things like TB 
but they, they tend to be caseating, you know, full of pus and so on. So it's, um, it's, it's kind of like, um, best way to describe it is overkill. Um, so maybe you came uh, across a, an insult and your body thought, my life depends on this. So uh, I'd better uh, go in there all guns blazing. Um, and uh, in doing so, it kind of uh, destroys part of your you know, healthy tissues. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And so we, we just continue to try and find a, a molecule or something that will prevent your body from then having that response and then creating the damage to whatever tissue is around it. Is that basically what we're lo looking at? Yes, yes. Um, uh, I mean, if you look at uh, the things that do work, I think steroids, prednisone, etc., um, have uh, the strongest evidence behind them, and they're powerful anti-inflammatories. So um, we use them for other things like uh, to prevent rejection in uh, transplants. So um, uh, again, things like methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, I'm not sure we know exactly how they work. We know the effects, you know, methotrexate, uh, you know, sort of uh, works by, you know, sort of inhibiting, well, uh, against folic acid, um, and that could affect, you know, sort of, um, uh, well, reduce inflammation. But the steroids have got the strongest uh, evidence behind them. Um, I'm hoping, I mean, as you know, um, the side effects can be awful with any medication that you're taking. Um, I think a step in the right direction would be finding a drug that suits most people, an anti-inflammatory uh, that uh, doesn't produce as many side effects as, um, uh, as you say, the devil's tic-tac. Yeah, the prednisone. Yeah. So, uh, so you have uh, a four-year-old daughter and a wife. How have they had to adjust around your situation? Um, it's more difficult for my wife, certainly, and um, in, in other respects with my daughter. So we're very fortunate that my wife works from home. Um, she's still very busy. Uh, you still have to be very dedicated, but she's around. Uh, and because I'm home, she checks up on me on, on a regular basis. Um, uh, I, I was very active before. I, I, I like DIY, strangely. So uh, any problems in the house, I, I would usually fix anything above my remit. I'd, I'd call the professionals in, but I'd mow the lawn, do the gardening, um, uh, give her lifts and things like that. But now we've got role reversal and she gives me lifts to, to my hospital appointments and such. Um, I mean, in a way, I, I feel most sorry for my daughter because one of the reasons why um, I, I try to stay as active as possible, even during a busy work schedule, was that uh, I would hope that I'd still have quality time with my daughter. And, and she's very active as well. And uh, I would have loved to have uh, played football with her and, uh, you know, sort of just played lots of games in the garden, uh, showed her, taught her. It would have been a privilege to teach how to play football, tennis, badminton. But alas, it's... Uh, it's a little bit beyond me physically at the moment. And uh, I think she, she will miss out a lot. When you, when you look at your current condition, I mean, it's not, is it worsening or is, is it staying the same? Um, the, the last PET scan I had showed that there was no inflammation in the heart and the lungs were actually um, better than they were uh, 12 months earlier. But physically, I feel 
um, less able to uh, do things. Uh, I'm not sure why, why that is. I do have other complications because of the heart muscle that's been affected. Um, as you know, there, there are effectively lots of wires in the heart. So if you lose muscle, you lose some you know, wires, you get uh, uh, someone's cut the wires almost. So I've been suffering from lo lots of um, ventricular arrhythmias and uh, they've been hard to control. There's a drug uh, that I take called amiodarone, which does help, but um, the more arrhythmias that you have, the, the more of an effect it has on your heart and it causes changes. So that could be one of the reasons why um, I feel a bit worse for wear. Mm -hmm. And medications are, are their own bear. So how many doctors do you have right now? How many different types of specialists? Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate uh, in that um, uh, everyone has access to their family practitioner, which is uh, uh, a sad thing. Uh, but um, we have regional um, heart uh, specialist teams. Uh, and the one I attend is just, again, 20 miles away. Uh, so I have one, certainly one, possibly two doctors there. One that uh, deals with um, uh, cardiovascular issues, you know, such as um, blockage of the arteries and the other one that deals with arrhythmias. But uh, the main one, uh, which uh, we're really fortunate to have in this country is, uh, is in London at the Royal Brompton Hospital. In fact, I think one of your guests might have been from that area or might have practiced there. Uh, but it's, as far as I'm aware, the only cardiac sarcoid clinic in all of the UK, and it serves all of the UK as well. So whether you live in Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, uh, you're still entitled to be referred there. Um, and the, the team is excellent. The, I think the issue is um, the reason why it's so good is because it's a multidisciplinary team. People talk to each other. Um, they're under the same roof. Uh, they have medical disciplinary meetings uh, discussing cases. I know I've been discussed, uh, discussed on a few different occasions. And uh, as my consultant said, they don't uh, make any sole decisions. It's a joint decision. So everyone has to be happy. All the clinicians have to be happy with the uh, management plan before they uh, uh, administer it. So uh, it, it, I, I can't speak highly enough of it. It's a really excellent service. And the good thing about it, because of healthcare in this country, um, nobody has to pay extra for it. Listeners to this show have heard me complain about physicians who don't talk to each other. Uh, now, and, and with the caveat that my physicians at the Cleveland Clinic do, which I love. And I, so my main doctor, I don't have any lung involvement, but my main doctor there is a pulmonologist because he's the one that understands sarcoid the best. But then I also have a neurologist there. Uh, and then there's another doctor behind the scenes who sort of guides the whole sarcoidosis clinic. Um, and they, they speak with one another before deciding what, what is what they're going to recommend to me. Um, why is that so difficult? Or is it an ego thing with doctors? Are they just busy? I mean, what, why isn't that more common? I mean, I don't know the real reason. I have my theories as well. Um, but uh, one is that um, um, people could be a bit self-conscious because they, they're not specialized in sarcoidosis. Uh, for instance, uh, when I first attended my clinic at uh, the Royal Brompton, I was told by, um, informed by the uh, specialist that um, uh, most cardiologists will never see a case of cardiac sarcoidosis. 
he's already seen about 20 that morning. Um, he has about 600 uh, cases on his list. So that's one element. And the other thing is that not all that many people are affected. So it's, if it was heart disease uh, or something like that, everybody knows exactly what to do. They have the flow diagram of uh, the protocols that they have to follow. Um, we need more understanding and we need more specialists basically. Um, and uh, maybe this, um, this method of the Royal Brompton will be uh, rolled out to you know, sort of other hospitals. But by the same token, I think personally that um, for an illness like this, you should really be uh, seen in a specialist center. Uh, and I'd heard of the uh, Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic and so on. And um, my wife is trying to encourage me to, you know, sort of uh, go there privately. Um, but I, I wanted to give uh, London a go first. But uh, if with anything, um, if you look in this country, we have uh, um, scores almost of uh, hospitals and on their performance and things like that. It's been shown time and time again that uh, the best outcomes are in highly specialist centres. So uh, there might be um, a specialist clinic that uh, deals only with cardiac sarcoidosis. Uh, I know there's a specialist clinic in Liverpool, not far from here, that only deals with epilepsy. So if you, their knowledge is second to none. And because they do this job daily, the, uh, all they see is sarcoid patients or epilepsy patients. So um, uh, no one can match that. If you're a kind of generalist and you see people with cystic fibrosis, sarcoidosis, uh, asthma, COPD, you can't specialize in sarcoidosis. Um, it, it's just too difficult. So uh, no criticism of the clinicians is just mm -hmm. how things are. Right, no, I, I totally agree with that. Um, the thing about sarcoidosis is that you need, you need someone who understands SARC and then you need someone that understands like in your case, you know, the heart. So you need a cardiac specialist. So with me, it's on my spinal cord. So I need a neurologist and I need a SARC specialist. And so it winds up, so rheumatology comes in and, and all these other different specialties. But I had a neurologist and a rheumatologist who worked on the same floor, but they never spoke to one another. So they're different disciplines. There's, no, there's nobody that's like, there's nothing that represents a SARC umbrella there, but one wanted to give me chemo and one wanted to give me Remicade, and I, who am I, you know, so, uh, at least at least in Cleveland, I felt like, okay, these people are dealing with sarcoidosis day in, day out. They, they, have, they, they recognize subtleties that someone who's got a more general approach and is dealing with lupus and all the other things that might be under rheumatology, for instance, um, uh, that, that guy, even though he is a, a specialist and that he's a rheumatologist, uh, is dealing with multiple different diseases and illnesses and patients from different backgrounds, whereas somebody that's treating SARC is just treating SARC, and that's hard to find. Mm. And again, I think uh, uh, you could be right. There could be a, uh, a bit of ego involvement, as it were, as well. Um, you know, specialists uh, do have strong views, and um, you don't get to a, a level like that without being quite, you know, sort of uh, forthright and uh, uh, self-confident. Um, so, uh, I'm sure that that aspect is there as well, but I think another thing is time constraints. 
Um, sometimes you just don't, I mean, I, I know from my personal practice that uh, uh, as soon as I uh, set foot in the um, surgery, uh, I don't, I barely look up until it's time to go home. And so I'd only see my colleagues just briefly, just in passing through the corridors. Sometimes it'd be necessary, I'd have to discuss patients with them, but it's just more and more difficult just because there's so much more we can do now. Um, I remember when I was uh, uh, first started practicing that uh, one of the um, uh, treatments for a heart attack was a handshake and uh, being wished good luck. And then, you know, sort of later on, thrombolysis came in, clot busters. And then now we're so fortunate that lots of people go for an angiogram straight away and have their blockage unblocked. And that produces a much better outcome. And it saves lives and uh, keeps um, you know, sort of people's quality of life you know, still up there. Right, right. Well, we have talked about a lot, uh, Tafik. I uh, appreciate you, uh, you coming on and you contacting me uh, and, and wanting to share your story. Um, I'm sorry that it's a story that you have to share, uh, that, that you have that story to share. I wish that your life had just gone on. You were still riding your bike and playing uh, football with your, with your daughter. But I certainly wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Thank you very much, John. And thanks for having me on the show. And I'd just like to say something quickly. Thank you so much for all the work that you do, uh, most of which I imagine is unrecognized. But it's so nice and refreshing to see someone using their skills uh, from the workplace uh, for such a, uh, a very important and uh, useful endeavor such as this. So thank you very much. Thank you. I feel like a zombie Just feeding at stumbling So many, many, many thanks to Tafik for joining me here on the Sark Fighter podcast all the way from the UK. So many takeaways from this interview. Uh, even he, as a physician, didn't consider sarcoidosis as a cause of the problems in his heart. It took a long time for uh, medical science to, to reach that conclusion. Uh, also, like most physicians, he does not believe that changes in lifestyle, and particularly diet, can lead to improvement. Any doctor I've ever talked to has said, eh, I don't think that's going to work. He didn't think that was going to work. Uh, there are other people out there who, who do think that uh, more of an Eastern medicine approach can help, and we'll continue to uh, to look for opportunities to talk about that here on the podcast. But he was consistent with other physicians that I had talked with, mostly uh, mostly my own and, and a couple that I've interviewed here. Um, I wish that I had asked him more actually about specifically an anti-inflammatory diet, um, because I do think that that I I feel like that helps me when I start to stay away from from uh, processed wheat in particular, uh, I feel like that helps me. And I know that if I go out and indulge in a couple of slices of pizza, I feel like crap after that. Um, so, but I didn't ask him about it, just didn't think of it, and I wish I had. Also, I'm amazed at, at how much Tafik and I have in common, right down to uh, one of the things, he's never been to the United States, and one of the things on his bucket list is seeing the Grand Canyon and when I became ill, that was one of the things I said, well, I don't know how long I'm going to be mobile. I don't know how well I'm going to feel. 
Uh, but I want to see the Grand Canyon. I've never seen it. It's in the Western United States. And Mary and I signed up for a trip, but it was canceled in 2020 because of COVID. And so now we're scheduled to go in 2021. But it's it's funny that Tafik and I both had the Grand Canyon on our uh, very high or at number one on our bucket list. Also, he shared with me how helpful the podcast has been to him. And I have to say that if you had told me 11 months ago that I would be doing a podcast that helped a doctor in Europe cope with his sarcoidosis, I would have told you you were crazy. So, so it is gratifying to know that the, the stories that we're telling here, that you are sharing, uh, and the information about sarcoidosis is, is making a difference for people. And I, I have to tell you that I have been listening to some podcasts about podcasting as I try to get better at this and try to make the reach more effective. And the advice that the pros give is that you ask the audience to tell somebody. If you like the show, tell just one person. So that is my request to you as we enter the holiday season here at the end of 2020. If you like this podcast, will you please tell just one other person in the sarcoidosis community or share it on your Facebook page uh, or your Instagram page or whatever. Let them know about the Sark Fighter podcast and help me make this effort even more effective. So that is, that's my request to you. And please, like Tafik did, reach out to me. Send me an email. Uh, my email address is right there in the show notes. It's carlinagency at gmail.com. Going back to my days when I was a, uh, in public relations and had my own agency, carlinagency at gmail.com. And also follow the Sark Fighter on Instagram. And I have a, a Facebook page dedicated to this as well. And if you'd like to click in and follow along and check out my posts, I appreciate that. Thanks again to Tafik for joining me here today. And Tafik, if you're listening, I hope our paths cross in person in the future. Maybe we'll meet on, on the rim of the Grand Canyon. Who knows? Until next time, folks, keep fighting. Oh, 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 oh.